0: A lot, of, a lot of you walked right on by me because you didn't recognize me and my new duds here. So, But it's me. Right? Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to be, uh, what was the word, Pastor? Uh, I didn't want to be uh, predictable. That's what it was. <laughs> but, uh, no, here I am. And I'm very happy to be here. Before we get started, I should like to just give a real brief at Folsom Bible Church, of which you guys pray for and support financially and just encouraging me as an individual and us as a body, um, not that numbers are anything, but it just kind of is encouraging to see that people are interested. We had 52, 52 people last week, so that was they're already talking about going into a bigger part, right? So I don't know what the Lord's doing, who's going to come back, I don't know, but I just thought I would report that, it's encouraging to us. Um, Bible. I love the, the people that have decided to be part of us. They're just sweet natured, gracious, Christ loving servants, and I'm very blessed to be around them. And so like on Saturdays we've been the last three or four weeks been going out to share Christ and evangelize our part of the world. And so it's just fun to see people who are interested in doing that and we trust God will add to his church through those means. And so uh the uh today at two we meet and Tessara Reed is coming to give a presentation because she's going overseas somewhere. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I think most of you know Tessara. So we're uh, having her today and so uh, hopefully God will use her to energize our young people to do something similar. You know, you got one life to live, soon it will pass, only that which is done for Christ will last. And so that's what we hope for. This is not your home, as comfortable as it is and as much as we love it. Even northern Idaho, right? As glorious as that is. you can It's not heaven. Bonners Ferry, you know, up that way. But you can see it from there. Um, <laughs> anyway. I think that's what I have to say for that. But now what I really want to say is uh, I was asked to preach on the atonement. I trust that's still what you're expecting, Patrick. Or, um, so, uh we're going to come and look at the atonement. What a perfect subject, of course, as we prepare and approach the Lord's table, which the Lord says is a memorial celebration of his death. That death is the means of atonement. Now, just interesting in my study, and I didn't even I didn't know this until last earlier this past week that in our English translations New American Standard, ESV, even King James, the word atonement is not found in your New Testament, which is fascinating. Right? It's a key doctrine that we love, and it is a truth, that you will not find the English translation, the English word in your English New Testament. Right? You will find the, the propitiation. Uh, so the Greek word that the Septuagint uses to translate atonement is used in the New Testament for propitiation. The mercy seat is the place of propitiation, the place of atonement, but you will not find the translation, the word, the English word in your New Testament atonement, which I find fascinating. So with all that to be said, today I want to, with the time we have, we want to look at this great doctrine of the atonement by going back into the Pentateuch to see the foundation of this doctrine, the context ...in which God initiated the Doctrine of Atonement, its meaning, the the provision and the purpose of it. And then, of course, we will finish, Lord willing, as it points forward into the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of what the Old Covenant pointed to. So then, to begin with, definition. Uh, Biblical doctrine, which is the Master Seminary version of shed or whatever... That's a systematic theology. A definition from there, I quote to you, just to launch us into this, about the atonement. The aspect of the work of Christ, and particularly his death, that secures the restoration of fellowship between individual believers and God. The aspect of of the work of Christ, and particularly His death, that secures the restoration of fellowship between individuals and God. Now, I'm going to launch off of that as though that's a true definition, okay? I think it is. Based on that definition, the core issue at hand as you speak of atonement is fellowship with God. That's the core issue at hand. Fellowship with God. That definition said, restoring fellowship with God. Obviously, restore is to return to a former condition, including the idea of repairing, renovating, which is to bring back to a former condition. So obviously, the former condition spoken of was fellowship with God. The former condition of mankind was fellowship with God, which is to say that now that's not the case. Since the fall, mankind has no fellowship with God. Atonement is to restore that which was lost, obviously. Fellowship. We throw that word around all over and some of us have a good grip of it. Some of us think we know what it means and think some of us don't have a clue. We just hear it. It's Christianese sometimes, right? Fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. What does this mean? Well, its base meaning, fellowship, is to share in common with someone. It is a joint participation It is a relationship of reciprocal friendship and love. Fellowship. You're sharing in common. Okay? Now, according to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, created in God's image, with no sin in its original creation, without sin, was in fellowship with God. That means in harmony with God, in a close, intimate relationship with God, with reciprocal expressions of friendship and love. There was a, a unity, if you will, a oneness, a fellowship between Adam and Eve and God. You know all of this. But something drastic happened in Genesis 3, as you know. The consequences were and remain to this day catastrophic, not only for creation, but especially for mankind, for humanity. In Genesis 3, the first humans rebelled against God in falling... For Satan's deception, and Adam, with eyes wide open, chose to follow Satan instead of obeying God. Therefore, at that time, the fellowship and the friendship they once enjoyed had been forfeited at that time. The immediate impact of sin on the human race is seen on its impact on the first two. Our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, verse 8, it says this. After they fell and their eyes were opened... The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That's something new. Okay, Mankind ever since has been hiding themselves from God. Mankind since the fall has been separated from God, alienated from God, estranged from God. We are born with a sin nature so that at conception we are Conceived and eventually born with a nature that is separated from God because of sin. Sin has so permeated us, fallen humans, we are corrupted outside of Christ. We are corrupted with sin. According to 1 John 3, 4, that sin is the transgression of Of God's commandments. It's disobedience. It's rebellion. The essence of sin, according to 1 John 3, 4, is rebellion. Not only then are we corrupted, tainted, we are also, the Bible says, enslaved in chains, if you will, to sin. Sin is seen as a tyrant, a dictator, a domineering dictator, and we are enslaved to him. So we are separated from God. Our essence, our nature, as a result of the fall, is rebellion against God. We are enslaved to this tyrant that leads us in opposition against God. Every aspect of our being, our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our will, our physical body, the key phrase, total depravity, is what that speaks to. Every every essence of us, every aspect of us is corrupted with sin. We are not all as bad as we could be, but we are all as bad off as we could be. We're not all expressing that sin nature like Adolf did in Germany, but we're just as bad off as Adolf in Germany. Amen? That's the doctrine. This is the separation. We are then separated from God, no fellowship with God, no friendship with God. We're separated from the life of God, the Bible says. And we're separated from His joyful presence. Even though God is omnipresent, because God is Spirit, you know this, but he He also manifests Himself specifically. You could be sitting here, and half of you are born again and dwelt by the Spirit of God and His unique presence in that sense. And the other two not know Jesus Christ, therefore not indwelt by God in his presence. And therefore, but the omnipresent God is everywhere, but uniquely he presents himself. Yes. So the fellowship that is lost is this unique reciprocal expressions of love and friendship. Even though God loves his enemies, causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. There is something that is uniquely intimate that was lost at the fall and because of sin. Okay, now, I have way too much information to get through, so if you want to follow, you can write these down. These are very familiar, but can I remind you what the Bible says about us? Because I want to establish this need of um, atonement and reconciliation. Ephesians 2 Verses 1 and 2, very familiar passage. So listen to the first three verses as I read these quickly, and I forgive me for this. Um, verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it's plural because it's individual, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the, of, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Then verse 3, Among them we too all, formerly, notice all, formerly lived, he's talking about before Christ, lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is the enslavement. We, we, are, we are living according to the lust of the flesh. That's our enslavement. And as a result of that, the end of verse 3 says, by nature we are children of wrath. We are children under God's wrath. In John 3, he speaks about our affection. Okay, we, we, our affections are been painted by sin so that verses 19 and 20, at least in John 3, is true of us. Listen to this, please. Verse 19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. That's Christ. And listen to this. And men, mankind, loved affection, the darkness, rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You see, man's affections have been impacted dramatically, catastrophically, in that mankind by nature loves Satan and darkness rather than Jesus Christ and light. That's the estrangement, separation. There's no fellowship. In Mark 7, please, the heart of man is exposed and revealed by Jesus Christ. In Mark 7, he says, in verse, for the sake of time, let's see here. He says, uh, "How about verse 20, Mark 7:20 and the following?" And Jesus was saying, "That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, the inner person, our nature, our disposition, proceed. Listen, the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness." As well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, 23. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. But what you eat doesn't defile you. But what comes out? Now, see, Notice the source of all those wonderful things is my heart. And that's because of the fall. Sin has tainted my affection, my disposition, my thinking. Yeah? Wow. In Genesis 6, just to show the breadth of all of this, listen to Genesis 6. This, this is right before the flood. And this is what God says about mankind as early on as Genesis 6. The corruption of man shown. Genesis 6, verse 5, at least, I believe it is. The, verse 5, Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, which we just read Mark seven, was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Okay? So there in Genesis six, as a result of the fall, God looks down on the planet at however many hundreds, thousands, of people that are involved here. Every intent of their heart, every thought The disposition. Why is it that way? It's because sin's impact on the inner person, on our souls, on our minds, on our hearts. Okay? That's the separation. That's part of the separation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every one of us, apart from Jesus Christ, if you're a human, this is true of all of us. Remember, we're laying the course for atonement. For atonement. Fellowship that has been breached, broken, needs to be restored. Now think, this. because of who God is, it is absolutely impossible for him to have fellowship with us. How about that. Because of who God is, it is absolutely impossible for him to have fellowship with darkness, with sin. God is at war, according to the Bible, with sinners. And sinners reciprocate. We are at war with God. Okay? Now, listen to Romans 1, 28 here. This is the third part, if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, where God lets them go. Because of their decision to abandon Him, He'll let them go. In verse 28, listen to this description of mankind here. Romans 1.28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and gossip. And then I want you to especially listen to these next words. slanderers. And the next verse 30 says, haters of God. Haters of God. The natural disposition of the fallen human is not to love God, it's to hate God. And God's character is what it is, holy and righteous. He cannot have fellowship with those who hate Him, with those whose hearts are so vile and wicked. Now, Colossians 1. Colossians 1, listen to this. Verse 21. And although, listen, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he is now reconciled. Formally, you were alienated. There's your separation. No fellowship. Hostile in mind. Do you get that? Our thinking. Fallen mind is in opposition against God and His righteousness. That's why I have to be commanded by God to love my Creator who provides me everything. That's crazy. If that doesn't show the depths of my depravity, nothing does. I also have to be commanded to love my wife. I have to be commanded to love my children. I understand being commanded to love my enemies. I'm still working on that really hard, but I'm not successful very much but I have to be commanded to love God. Shouldn't that be natural? Yeah, it should be for, for those who are not tainted with sin. The impact. Yeah. Okay. Romans 1.18. You can write it down because my clock is running. That clock is way too fast. Um, <laughs> the wrath of God is what? Being revealed against all unrighteousness. Romans one eighteen. My point is this. We just said that we are hostile in mind to God and that we hate God. Romans 1.30. Romans 1.18 says that God's wrath is being consistently, constantly, present tense verb, poured out on this world. Every day we see and hear of God's wrath against unrighteousness. Listen to the psalmist. This is intense stuff here. Psalm 5. About God's disposition here. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 6. You won't hear this, Don Caleb. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Does that offend you? Is that foreign to the God you know? God has to be of that disposition if he's righteous. You see? He would be like me if he didn't have that disposition. Because he is righteous perfectly to the core and he's good. Because he's good, he must have that disposition against him. Okay? Now, there's more. Listen to Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Indignation means really mad. <laughs> right? Because he's a righteous judge, he has indignation every day. From that cesspool that we just read about, Genesis twelve, God chose Abram. Here's the history of atonement, real fast. God chose Abram out of that cesspool. There was nothing righteous in Abram, amen. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, not even Abram. But God chose him anyhow. And from Abram he promised blessing. In a, in a relationship to all his descendants after him. And so they went through Isaac and it went through Jacob. They went down to Egypt, remember, with Joseph. 400 plus years, they're in Egyptian bondage. But at that time, they're starting to grow and grow and grow. By the time they come out in Exodus with Moses, there's 620,000 soldiers. 603, 550, actually, right? Um, men 20 years and over who can fight. Over half a million. So that tells you there's at least a million, maybe a million and a half Israelites whom God is going to bring out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land. Okay? And it's all of grace. It's all of God's doing. He brings them to the Mount Sinai at the foot of Sinai there. He gives them laws, different laws to govern their everyday life, to govern their worship. In the middle of camp, the twelve tribes of Israel, if you remember the book of Numbers and such, and the book of Exodus, how he designed the camp to spend the night until he decided to move them north and south, east and west, very orderly. What is in the center, what is the hub, is where God says, I will dwell. And he, God gave to Moses the blueprints to build the tabernacle. God, Moses didn't come up with that. He didn't sit down with the elders and say, hey, what should it look like? God gave it to him on top of the mountain. And it was a shadow of that which is in heaven. How awesome is that? And in that tabernacle, which is also known as the tent of what? The tent of meeting. The tabernacle is known as the tent of meeting. The tabernacle was a portable tent that God said, I'm going to dwell in the midst of my people. And you remember he had, uh, in the tabernacle, he had a curtain that divided the rest of the tent, inside the tent, from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the cherubim were facing each other, and God says, I will meet with you there. Fascinating. The tabernacle was designed by God so he could have fellowship with Israel. But you couldn't just come running into the presence of God willy-nilly, could you? Ask Nadab and Abihu how that went, right? Fire came out from the altar and consumed them. And right after that is when God then establishes something that is key. Go to Leviticus, please. Leviticus should be one of your favorite books. (laughs) People are saying, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard it. Leviticus chapter one. How is it that holy God can be in the presence of such a cesspool of humanity, which Israel is a representative of, right? How can that happen and God not consume them? How can that's not a safe place for Israel to have God in your presence when we're still out of fellowship, okay? Because we read he has indignation, he hates he hates sin. He hates sinners, but out of love, God pursued Abram, designed the tabernacle, came into the presence. Look at Leviticus. This is how sinful Israel can approach a holy God. This is this is how fellowship can happen. Look at verse one, Leviticus one, first four or five verses. This sets the tone. Listen, please, or watch. Then then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of what. Meeting, that's the tabernacle. And you come off the end of Exodus 40, the Shekinah glory came to the tabernacle and it showed that God was pleased with what was built and that His presence was there. Okay, now how are you going to approach this God without Him killing you? Well, here it goes. Verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it. A male without defect. He. Male without defect. Unblemished, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. For what purpose? At the end of verse three, what will that do? What says you? What says God? He may be accepted before the Lord. Who will be accepted before the Lord? The worshipper. The worshipper. If he doesn't do that, guess what? You're not accepted before the Lord. God says, yeah, I'll welcome you in. I'll have fellowship with you, but you have to go through this process. Because you're still a dirty rotten sinner and I'm righteous. (laughs) Look what it says. The end of verse 3. That he may be accepted before the Lord. That means before in the presence of God. Verse 4. He shall lay his hand. He being the, the worshiper. You and I, let's enter into this. Go back to time. You are here. You're the he or she, put in verse 4. Shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. What is that symbolic of? Transfer. I'm coming here and I lay my hand on the head of this animal. It is symbolic. God's designed it, therefore it's appropriate. I'm transferring my guilt, my sin... That which causes the breach between me and God. God says, I have a process by which you can approach me. Lay your hand on the head of this animal. Is the animal innocent or guilty? Innocent, that's right. I'm the guilty one. I'm transferring my guilt onto that animal. I am. Look at verse 4 again, please. On the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make what? Atonement on his behalf. Transferring my guilt to that animal. This is how atonement is made. Verse 5. What then happens? He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. Who who kills the young bull? You do. The priest takes the blood. You kill the animal. I mean, that is graphic. In our day and age, people would call you an animal, whatever. God says, this is how you're going to approach me. You're going to transfer your guilt onto this innocent animal. You're going to slay him. And that's how atonement is going to be made for you. You see what he's establishing? I'll give you. Substitutionary sacrifice. A substance. Sacrifice, the innocent for the guilt. It just had to be happen all the time. The blood of the animal was sprinkled all around, and that's how atonement was made. Now we have to get our hand around the word atonement with a few minutes here. The, the Hebrew word here, kaphar, or uh, the derivative is kapur, like yom kapar, right? The, the, in the Hebrew. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, with a day in the uh, calendar. Sorry. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. Okay? This word atonement is from Kafar, which means to cover over. It's used in Genesis 6.14, for instance, in a non-spiritual sense, of Noah covering the ark with pitch. Remember who he painted so the wood wouldn't leak. That same word is used here when it says covering Here, the blood is making a covering over. The death of the animal in God's design is covering over your sin. So that the worshiper now, because of that act of faith, is acceptable before holy God. And fellowship now can happen to a degree. To a degree. Okay? Because the priest must take this blood. Turn to Leviticus 16 real quick because that's Yom Kippur. It's so good. This Mm is why you should love Leviticus. It reeks of Christ. (laughs) It reeks of Christ. How about we pick it up? Oh, man. I'm just going to read lots of stuff here so it's from God. 16, verse 1 now the Lord spoke to Moses by the way Leviticus has that phrase spoke God spoke more than any book in the Bible in Leviticus that's why you should love this book in his presence is more in this book than any other book in the old Testament. right wow Leviticus what well, makes sense because we're talking about how can sinful Israel come into the presence of a holy God. Oh, I'm glad you have to do the sacrifice of an innocent animal in their place. Spoke Moses after the death of his two sons, that's back in chapter 11, Nadab and Bahu, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died, verse 2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat. That is related to propitiation, The place of propitiation, which is on the ark, or he will what? He will die. There's an incredible warning there in verse 2. I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Verse 3, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The high priest must have an offering for his sin and for the sins of the people in order to come into the presence of God and not be killed. 4, 5, and 6 talks about his, his dress, the high priest's dress. I want to, for time, to get over to verse 11, please. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement, covering over, literally, for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull and the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a firepan full of coals of fire, verse 12, upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely grown sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense must cover the mercy seat, which is in between the two cherubim on top of the ark. And this is on the ark of the testimony; otherwise, he will die. You think God wants to take His word precise, or just leave that to you to kind of interpret however you want it? Um, look at verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat, still talking about the high priest Aaron, he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, this is the day of atonement, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the place of propitiation in front of the mercy seat. Verse 16, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do... for the tent of meeting which abides with Him in the midst of their impurities. Do you see what verse 16 is saying? We are so sinful and God is so pure that that earthly representation of heaven must be cleansed with blood because sinful high priests are working in there. We take the holy place. That puts us right down where we belong, man. Humble before the Lord. We by nature because of sin taint the hope and in the Old Testament this is what this is saying that there must be blood shed in order to cleanse the tent of meeting fascinating fascinating we got that we only got six minutes no, no I'm, listen this is the tabernacle we got the idea of, of sacrifice Atonement being made here on behalf of the people. The priests had to be covered that way because they're sinful. Solomon's temple. Zerubbabel's temple. Herodian's temple. Came out here at the time of Christ. They have the veil. They have the curtain. They have the sacrifice. They have Yom Kippur. They have the same kind of thing here, right? You cannot approach God just willy-nilly. In fact, the Gentiles couldn't go beyond this uh, part, and the righteous Jews couldn't go past that part because that's the, whole, the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. Behind the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant, which is what we've been looking at here. And only the high priest one time a year could go behind the Ark, but he had to be with blood. Okay go to <laughs> oh lord um, how about Romans 3 As you're turning to Romans 3 can I give you this list of verses that I know you know these You got Mark 10:45 you got 1 Peter 2:24 you got Isaiah 53 you got Galatians three thirteen. You have got Hebrews nine and ten. I mean, this is all speaks of this same thing. This is the this is the grand theme of the new covenant, isn't it? The substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was symbolized in the old covenant rabbinical sacrifices. Okay. Do you remember the transfer? Right, laying on of hand. That and the Day of Atonement, there was two lambs, two goats. One was to be slain, killed, the other was called the scapegoat. And my sin, the sins of the people, were transferred onto the scapegoat. It was taken out into the wilderness. Who wander about never to be seen again. The picture given there is these two terms expiation and propitiation. Propitiation, atonement, is basically a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God, it placates, it satisfies. That's the shed blood. The animal that died, by his blood, my sins, the worshiper's sin, was propitiated. It was appeased. And the wrath of God was deflected, was absorbed. Therefore, he's free to bless you. The scapegoat is a sign of expiation. Expiation is to cleanse, to remove, to send away. The death of Christ does both. The death of Christ appeases the wrath of God on your stead. It also cleanses you so that your sin is as far as the east is from the west, because like the scapegoat, it's been sent away. cleansed. you see. So then, when you come to Romans 3, look at verse 24 and 25 at least. There's something like that. (laughs) Um... Paul writes, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So, he's talking about justification, but it's, the, it's grace and it's death. Redemption through Christ. 25, look at, this, look at this. Whom, Christ Jesus, God the Father, I add, displayed publicly as a, my new NAS says, propitiation. In His blood through faith. Now, get this. Why does he say displayed publicly? Because in the old covenant, they went behind the curtain. And only the high priest went. And so it's like in secret and sense. God, on the cross, for all the world to see, the whole universe to see, has made propitiation on behalf of his people. In the death of his son. Placed on His Son is the sin of the world. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away, what? The sin of the world. Where would the Jewish mind go? But to Leviticus. To Leviticus. And you're saying, this is the guy who's going to fulfill all those animals that died in the past. And in the same way then, the innocent, An undefiled, an unblemished Son of God, the pure and lovely Jesus Christ, hung and died as though He was a filthy, rotten, vile sinner like me. Just like the animal. He was slain so that I could be set free. Graphic, graphic picture. While Jesus was screaming, My God, why have forsaken me. Why did He forsake Him? Because our sin was placed on His Son, and so the Holy Father cannot have fellowship with sin. so identified was the Son of God with sin that the Father turned His back on Him. Amazing! So that He would never turn His back on you who are in Christ. Now listen to this. While Jesus then, if everything's done, He says... Father, it is finished. The slain lamb with triumphant, victorious exclamation says to tell us, darling. "It is finished, complete. The sacrifice fully satisfied." While that was happening in the temple, something fantastic happened. That that. That woven goat's hair curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy. What happened to it? It was torn from top to bottom, not from the bottom to the top. Why did it go from the top to the bottom was to show that this is from God. The offended party has done what he demanded in order for fellowship to happen between sinful man and righteousness. And the barriers removed in the person of Jesus Christ. Fellowship is restored. Friendship with God is possible for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. I have to end. Have you placed your faith in this Jesus Christ? If so, do you realize that all of your sins according to Colossians two thirteen are forgiven? Every single one of them. So we do not do the Lord's table like the Catholic Church. We do it like a bunch of Bible believing, Christ loving Christians. It's a it's a celebration, beloved. It is a celebration that this is the means of our fellowship and friendship and joy in the presence of God. Is that not glorious? I need to pray. Father, we thank you for the means of atonement. We thank you that fellowship has been restored and it is secure and we will never be out of fellowship once we are in We thank you for your plan. We thank you for your scripture, which is so clear to us. The one who is innocent, dying for those who are guilty. His Revelation would say, Jesus Christ loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Father, anyone here, if they are outside of you and don't know, their eternal destiny, I pray you do a move, a work in their heart right now. For those who are yours, may you encourage them and strengthen them, that they will forever be in fellowship with you because of Christ. And to that end we pray, amen. Amen.